The following discussion took place at an Ivy Ideas Night in Los Angeles, featuring fashion icon and legendary designer Rachel Roy. In this live conversation with Ivy's Director of Strategic Relationships, Sarah Zapp, Roy discusses her path to founding her own brand and her belief in using our entrepreneurial spirits as a force for good. Please enjoy our conversation with Rachel Roy. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer. You know what, guys? I am so excited to have Rachel Roy here, not only because of her great success, but because of the way that I have seen her in this town really contribute and really be a passionate advocate for wanting change. Rachel Roy is the founder and creative director of her namesake line. It has been 10 years where she has really used the Rachel Roy brand to help people understand their limitless potential. She is also an advisor and a real advocate for World of Children, which helps underprivileged children. She recently launched Kindness is always fashionable, that really brought together a philanthropic approach to doing business with what she loves, fashion. And it's not what she does, it truly is who Rachel Roy is. So put your hands together for Rachel Roy. Woo! Come on up. Thank you. Have a seat. Hi, everyone. And isn't I'm sorry, I hate to embarrass you right off the bat, but isn't she stunning? Oh, Every time I see her, she's so statuesque and beautiful. I'm like, wait, are you sure that you actually design the clothes and you, you don't just model them because well, you're so beautiful? and makeup. It's my industry. It, but. it works. It works for you. <laughs> and what, you have a Dutch mother? My mom's Dutch and my dad is Indian, first generation immigrant. So I don't know who else out there has been raised by immigrant parents, but I actually credit my dad for starting my business because they do expect you to work, work, work all the time. <laughs> well, you started working as a teenager, right? Yes. So at 14, um, and I have an older brother, so I thought this might happen, but I didn't really have, um, I wasn't sure, but at 14, we were told that we have to start contributing to the household. And I didn't. And <laughs> my birthday rolled around, and my dad dropped me off at McDonald's and told me not to come home until he had, until I had a job. And I love McDonald's, but I didn't want to work there. So I took a bus to the mall and got myself a job, and uh, was able to go home. So I have only actually worked in fashion, and it really informed um, those years, 14 through college. Um, and a little bit beyond, really informed what my customer wants. I knew it at a very basic level until it was like breathing. And uh, when I started my company, it just made sense. It clicked. So how did you make that jump from being in the fashion industry and business to actually launching your own brand and company? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's the big question, right? For any of you out there thinking, um, at what point can I start? Can I break away from my salary job and start uh, working on my own passion? And the real answer is you have to be brave enough to jump and grow your wings on the way down. You're never going to have the wings before. It just doesn't work like that. That's not how the universe um, has set us up. And it's not how we're set up to succeed. I actually think that um, success does not provide any type of knowledge. Rather, failure does. And um, the more failure in every aspect of life, the more growth and the more learning. So for me, I did start while I was um, working. And I started a passion. I didn't have any type of business plan. I didn't know if there was a white space, which is a marketing word that I'm sure you all have heard and use a lot. Um, I just started making clothes that I needed and I wanted to wear. So <clears throat> what I needed was clothes that worked from eight in the morning until eight at night for working women. And that's what um, my business started on and that's where I found success because you will find people that are into what you're into if it's authentic. So tell them a little bit about exactly everything that's in your line right now. For you, and for those of you who don't have context, you've dressed little known women like, I don't know, Michelle Obama, you know, little known names like that. How does that feel to have grown to that kind of level of success? That's such an interesting question because those of you um, that have started your own business or thinking about starting your own business, you never get to the point where you, you sit back and you think, okay, great, I'm done. Because the curiosity doesn't allow for it. There's so much more that you want to um, not only experience for yourself, but for your customers. And when Michelle, um, I think either... Someone that works on my team um, gave me an email that Michelle was wearing one of our garments. What was so um, kind of her, actually, is probably the best word, was that she wore something that was off the rack and still available. <laughs> and it sounds... Yes, from a sales <laughs> perspective, that's gold. <laughs> right, from those 10 plus years of working retail um, from the ground up. What that means is um, she didn't go through a stylist, she didn't get it for free, but also that if anyone wanted to emulate her, which she was the First Lady of the United States of America, and many did and do, that the product is still available. And she was thinking about um, small American businesses, I think. And, um, but at that moment, when I got the call or the email, I was quite thankful, and that is something that I would like to remind um, all of my co-entrepreneurs is to think about how much you have accomplished, even in starting, because the difference between entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs is the start, and really that's it, because many people have great ideas, but not many people act on their great ideas. I don't think everyone really has context for how expansive your line is. Tell us a little bit about everything that you're encompassing now. Sure. So I started in 2004, and I started with designer product, which is what I loved. And 
About 2008, I started a secondary collection, and that was when the economy wasn't actually doing that well with retail. And the way that that benefited me was not a lot of other brands were starting secondary lines. And so I didn't have a lot of competition in the market at that price point. So that really worked out in my favor. So, you know, the takeaway from that is you can do the exact opposite of what you are, <laughs> you know, what the, the experts recommend and, and it can be a success. Um, the interesting thing is what I love, which is a beautifully made garment, because I do think that it helps you stand up a bit taller, um, feel better about yourself. And I think that's a, a fantastic um, area of fashion. We all know there's a lot of not so fantastic areas, vanity and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I bring that up to say that I had to stop my designer line. Um, there came a time when my partners just did not want to fund that anymore. And I had a decision, just focus on the secondary line. And let me tell you, it is quite hard to make beautiful product with fabric that costs $2. Sounds funny, but it's true. And I made the decision, absolutely. Um, my, my relatives, but even my experience, my childhood growing up, the stores that I sell my secondary line to, I probably couldn't have even afforded to shop at. So I care very deeply about that customer and designing beautiful product for her. But you will get faced with those types of big uh, decisions. And you think one thing is your dream, but the universe opens up another avenue um, where you can be of service and you can do a really good job that you weren't even thinking in the back of your mind. Because us designers, a lot of times, our heads in the clouds. We want to make beautiful product that no one can afford. So how did you start to incorporate philanthropy? Because this isn't something you do because that's what you should be doing these days. It's really become uh, an integral part of everything that you stand for, even to the degree that you you wrote it into your contract um, with, with the people who are funding you. Yeah, that's right. So... What I learned um, for about seven years that I worked as a licensing manager, and what that is, licensing manager is any product not made in-house is made through a licensee. And so for seven years, I was a liaison between any licensing company and um, the people that I worked for. And so I really understood making product in-house, but I also understood how product made through a partner can sustain a business. And so I knew this well, um, but again, what I learned was through the failures. And I learned that whatever you write into the contract is really all that you have to protect you because whether or not someone says they agree with you and has the same um, values and point of view, you won't know that until you start working with them, until um, every single day you show up and put the work in. And so I knew enough to know that if I don't put something into a contract, it's probably not going to happen. And so I wrote into the contract with my first partners on my own line, on my own business, that I wanted to develop product for women in third world countries 
as if they were my factories. In other words, I wanted to employ women that had a really, really difficult time finding work that were seamstresses. And so most of you probably know that um, the secondary collections, the a little bit cheaper product is mostly made in China, in um, a few other countries, India, Peru, etc., but definitely not in um, Africa. And there's very talented seamstresses in Africa. And so I wrote that into the contract so I would never have to have that really uncomfortable back and forth that you have with people that are sustaining your business financially, but... Um, perhaps don't always see the beauty in authentic marketing stories. So talk a little bit about this, this love capsule collection. So currently, um, on my birthday and other holidays that are important to me, I make Which a collection. Which is coming up soon, so we're going to consider this as a pre-birthday celebration. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I make a collection called my love capsule. And literally, it could be quite literally, we write the word love on things. I was a huge George Michael fan, so I made a Choose Love t-shirt in honor of him recently. Um, but this collection for my birthday is camo and rainbow, things that make me quite happy. I think camo is a classic, and rainbow is that kind of image that you think of it, or you rest your eyes on it, and it makes you smile. So... Um, cute little cropped camo jacket, but the idea that someone's going to buy it because she loves it, and if she cares, she'll know that the, the the money is going to help women and children in countries where it's really hard to even help themselves, and if she doesn't, then she's just getting a cute little um, product. You've taken trips to to Africa. You've gone into some of these communities and met some of these women that you're trying to help. What was one of the most poignant moments for you? Wow, that's um, that's a great question. I think every moment of travel, particularly in India, because my dad came from such a low caste that I realized um, from a very early age that that could be me. And I realized that I had um, a responsibility and, quite frankly, an honor to do what I could. And it's never enough, but um, to give back and to help leave the door open and make it really easy for other people to walk through the door. So um, hmm, the most impactful may actually have been my first trip to India. I was three years old. My first memory of life was um, a little girl. She had her fingers what looked like burned together, so it looked like a little web, little like um, ducks. What do you call that? They're... Feet. Yeah, webbed Web, feet. Yes. Webbed feet. Thank so you. Her audience. hand looked like that. And she was begging, and my dad gave her a few coins. And I remember being so angry at him for not taking care of her, not giving her more. But he explained to me that if he gave her too much, the people that made her hands like that would harm her even more. And my dad was very kind of. Um, blunt like that, but that information stayed with me. So immediately my first memory as a child is knowing not only that there are kids begging, but that they're hurt specifically so that we will give them money. I mean, that's pretty intense to, you know, conceptualize as a, as a young child. 
But I carried that around and I still do that how can we not, or me, I should speak for myself, how can I not help when there are such extreme circumstances in the world? So I just weave it into what I do anyway. And it's quite easy when you do that. When I give personal appearances at Macy's, which is my big partner, um, my biggest partner right now, and talk to young people, it could be in any job that they work in. If they work in a pizza shop, you can ask your boss if you can give away whatever's not sold. And you'd be surprised at how many times the answer is yes. If you work at a library, can you read to kids that don't know how to read or teach um, English? Or And the answer is always yes. And what was um, a lesson that I learned really early on is that Bosses want help. They have so much that they have to think about. They have so many decisions that they have to make all day long that if if and when I came to them with an idea, it kind of saved them time <laughs> from having to think, and they said yes. And so it can be super small things, and I learned that, and I did very small things in um, anything that I did. And when I started my own company, I was able to do a little bigger things, but because I had worked it into the contract, I never had that headache of having to um, beg or put yourself in a position where you have to, you know, kind of humble yourself and give up something else that you might not want to give up um, in order to give back. How is your kindness is always fashionable campaign working into your, your business mantra? Kindness is always fashionable started for me when Pakistan had this huge, huge flood. And I want to say maybe uh, 12 years ago, I don't, I don't remember exactly when, but my 18-year-old now was a little girl and I was showing her what was going on in the world. And she looked at the news, she looked at the television and she looked at me and she said, well, what are you going to do about it? And it was just very innocent, right? Like your child wants, you know, she sees something awful and she wants to know what's mom going to do. And at the time I wasn't doing anything about it. So I thought to myself, well, you know, we all kind of feel like our voice isn't that heard or that loud. Um, and I thought, I guess I could make product. It's what I do anyway. And it's what I'm good at. It's the one time I don't second guess myself. I don't have any doubt when it comes to design. So I had a Blackberry. This is years ago. I looked at my Blackberry and every single person in my Blackberry I reached out to that was what I considered an influencer, even though they weren't using that, that term um, that long ago. And I asked them if I could have their signature to make a bag um, for the children of Pakistan. And this was at that time when um, our government thought that Pakistan was hiding some unsavory people. And so to get like the CEO of Bergdorf and the CEO of Macy's and Graydon Carter, the former editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, to give their signatures and give it quickly, and, and knowing that I was going to sell the product in stores where people could see their name and, you know, have possibly... Um, Negative, negative impact on their own business, that meant so much to me. Um, but really, what I was hoping it would say is, it's not about politics, it's just about helping the kids. And this list of names, um, which Oprah, you know, a funny little side note to that story, all of the really big names like Oprah signed like this. And when you look at the list, some Wait of a minute, I'm sorry, you actually have Oprah in your phone? 
Well, I had been on her show, so I didn't have like her direct number, but I had her producers. You make or, it happen. I love yeah, that. It was enough. Maybe it was Gail. I'm not sure who I asked, but <laughs> it happened like this. No lawyers, no nothing. And then if you look at the list, you'll see some names that you're like, oh, I wonder why she asked her. Those are the ones that were like, let me talk to my agent. <laughs> it just goes to show that the ones that are super, super successful are also the ones that are really confident and self-assured and know who they are and what they stand for. And it seems very generous in, in that capacity. Generous, but another um, tip for those of you that may be working on your own give back is that whenever I ask people for things, I try to make it free for them or at least make them feel like it is. So um, if they buy, right, for my birthday, the Love Capsule has this amazing, cute little camo crossbody bag um, that I've been wearing a lot just because it goes with everything and it's super handy. So technically that's not free, but they're getting something for it. And like a signature, that's free. Yeah. Um, I have been holding on to this for a while, this design your life book, what, and they're great, you know, fashion tips in here or whatnot, but what do you think has been your key to designing the kind of life that you could really have only imagined when you were that young girl visiting India? Design your life to me means that every day within every moment you have a choice. So whether you have a headache, you can turn the lights on and put a candle on. And it, again, sounds very minute, but for me, sometimes artificial light can give you a headache. And it's, it's really just taking ownership and taking control of your own happiness, not blaming your parents, not blaming your um, husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, just taking ownership of those choices and remembering that it's a choice. You know, especially as a child, you think, your happiness is dependent on your parents, and many times it is. If they're, you know, wonderful people, then you're happy. If they're awful and they're tyrants and you're miserable, but the sooner that it can click that we're the ones that are in charge of our choices, we're the ones, therefore, in charge of our happiness. And so for me, design your life. It's something that we would say in the office. It's something that I just kind of had as um, part of my conversation. And it took shape as, as a book because I designed the life I wanted to have. I did not grow up with any type of privilege. And yet I felt I did in my head. I uh, watched old movies. That's all we were allowed to watch. And so I had this type of young elegance, I'll call it. And it made me think that I was living a different type of life until you just do, until you just surround yourself with the things that make you happy. You're designing your life. Okay, let's do something fun, which you did not know is coming. Let's do a quick rapid fire, 20 seconds or under answer. So favorite fashion tip. Favorite fashion tip. It's so cliche, but it really is. Um, you have to dress for what actually makes you look good, not for what the magazines say is trending. I totally don't believe that kind of stuff. And I believe that happy people are the sexiest people. So it doesn't have anything to do with selling products. Oh, I love that. The happiest people are the sexiest people. You should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> okay, next favorite charity. Well, I guess kindness is always fashionable, but also world of children who I work on with friends. And so if you 
work on a give back with a friend, it's like none other because you know, what, what you give comes back, but also you're laughing or sometimes crying, but it's with a friend and you're growing with a friend and it's, it's the best. I'm telling you. Biggest challenge you've had to overcome in your life. Oh my God. The list goes on and on. And while I'm going through them, they're horrible. And pretty quickly after I get it and I'm thankful to the point that the more the more recent ones. So I'm in my 40s. So the, anything that's happened in my 40s, even my late 30s, I was smart enough to know this sucks, but I'm going to be amazing in two weeks because <laughs> I'm going to be smarter and I'm going to be more confident and I'm going to know myself so much more. I'm going to care less about the things that actually don't matter. It, it's it's true. When, when you're going through change, no one likes change. It's really uncomfortable. We don't seek it out. But I, I've been through so many hard things, whether it's work or personal or my um, family, that I understood that maybe sooner than others, that it does make us more beautiful. And again, happiness equals sexiness. I love that. You're a big fan of vision boards. What's one of the most interesting things on your next or current vision board? Um, hmm... Well, I like to travel a lot. So I put the cities that I want to go to or work won't stop and I won't look up and I won't ever go to those cities. And um, so I put a lot of uh, different cities. Um, But for my move to California from New York, I lived in New York for 19 years and I just felt that something was wrong there and it just wasn't feeling like the right place to raise my children. And so I had a vision board for about a year and a half of homes by the beach and things that very much represented California. I just didn't know what it meant at the time. And I ended up moving to California and buying a house online without having ever seen it. Um, You bought a house online without ever having seen it? How did did that work out for you? It's great. I love it. But I lived, I lived in New York for 19 years, so we're quite thankful when you come to a walk-in closet or um, natural light or a backyard. I mean, my realtor told me that all of his New York City-specific clients were just like me. It wasn't, it wasn't exclusive to my uh, gratefulness or happiness at natural light and space and... Um, so, yeah, my kids were, like, thinking they were going to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's house until they actually moved here and then really saw Bel-Air. <laughs> <laughs> but the great thing about New York City is that it does produce some really cool kids and some really grateful kids for um, what the world has to offer for them. Real quick, I should have added this one to the rapid fire. Your greatest moment of accomplishment in fashion when you saw a particular person wearing your clothes or an accolade, your your biggest moment so far in fashion? I've had so many happy moments. I have Amy who um, has run my team for, this is going to make me cry for like the last 10, 12 years. And you really can't do anything without a team or without someone that just gets you without having to um, articulate yourself or, um, you know, what it's like working with partners or, you know, people that don't really understand you. So to have a team of women, which I do, that has worked for me for years. And it's the reason why I could move to California and have 
a company in New York sustained. But I would say my proudest moment is when my uh, my first partners did not want to fund my company, which was fine. But not only did they not want to fund my company, they didn't want my company to exist. So I um, could have done what some of the other designers that they funded did, which was nothing, or I could fight. And so I went to Anna Wintour. I went to the president of the CFDA. I asked lots of different people what I should do. And the majority of them said nothing. Do not go through a lawsuit. You will not be able to handle it. Um, Lawyers are built to destroy you and embarrass you. And for some reason, women do not like to be embarrassed and you will not be able to handle it. And I went ahead and I did not take their advice and I fought and it was horrific, but possible. And I got my name back. And now because I was willing to fight, there is something in the court of law that states, if you have a hundred percent creative control over your name or your product, which thank God those seven years of working and licensing allowed me to know to also write that into contracts, um, you have the right to buy your name back. Whether or not that partner has a higher percentage of your own company, whether or not they have a lot more money, you have the right to buy your name back. Your um, What you want to do with your company trumps their percentage and the amount of money that they have, which it had never been written before and it had never been ruled on before. And the reason it hadn't been ruled on is because designers are creative, usually sensitive people that don't care to fight. Who does? It's horrible. But I made that decision and I was so proud of myself after um, after that outcome because it was the hard decision to make. Wow. And because it helps other people too. Congratulations. What a great precedent to to set. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's pure source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor-distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor-distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer.